0: Please turn your Bibles to Romans 14. As you're turning, uh, I want to let you know. I know that it's probably gone out through the email chain, but last night, Louise Tomlinson passed away. It was a little before 9 o'clock last night. Um, she was a member of this church for uh, almost 81 years. So I don't know who's going to catch up to that next, uh, you know. But. Uh, a faithful member and a friend to many of us, and so I want to encourage you that for her, uh, her rest is won. The scriptures say, "Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord." So we give thanks for Christ's victory that she gets to experience, and we get to envy that. For us, we have lost a friend, and so uh, we pray for one another that God would encourage us with all the hope of Christ's accomplishments and victory. In a moment, as we pray for our time in the Scriptures, I'm going to mention that, but I wanted to speak of it here first. We're in the book of Romans. We're working our way through it. and In Romans 14, Paul is working out really practical matters of what the Gospel says. The Gospel is this. Everywhere we were unrighteous, Jesus gives us righteousness to answer every need. Whether it's in our status before God, He clothes us in righteousness. Whether it's our uh, being under the power and slavery of sin, He breaks the power of sin and, and gives us power from heaven to put sin to death and to walk in new life. If it's the shame of sin, He welcomes us as sons and daughters and says, You belong with me. Now knowing those things, how does it work out in really practical matters and particularly how does it work out in places where well we kind of disagree, places where we've worked out things and our families and our walk with Christ looks a little different. How do we live in the church as one body rescued by Jesus with all of our differences? That's what Romans 14 is about. And so we want to have God instruct us on how love is from Christ through us to each other able to handle all of those differences. What does it look like? Before we read of that, let's pray for God's blessing. Father, we're thankful for Your Word and Your promises that tell us we can be rescued by Jesus, completely washed clean, and we long for those promises to be fulfilled in us. And we're thankful that Louise gets to taste those promises in their fullness today. To be freed from every burden she carried from the weakness of age, from the infirmities that she's had for so long. uh, To know the rest of being with Jesus. As Paul said, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. So we... We're thankful for that. We pray that You would comfort those here who've lost a friend and a companion and and one in whom we admired. Uh, We pray that You would be gracious to us and fill us with faith and comfort today because of Jesus' resurrection and His sure coming again. And knowing that our Savior is coming, we want to live for Him. So would You tell us how? Teach us how we could respond to Your grace and uh, practice it in our relationships with each other. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans 14, beginning in verse 13. This is God's Word. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for, for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace And for mutual upbuilding, do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself or what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats. Because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. This is God's word. It's completely true and is utterly trustworthy. Occasionally, we'll have this conversation at our house. It's in the morning around breakfast, and I'll have just finished, and I'll be carrying the dishes that I used in and start rinsing them, water splattering, and get ready to put them in the dishwasher. And my wife will say, hey, just leave that on the counter. I'll take care of it. Now, you need to understand that for me, it's a huge force of will for me to put that dishes on the counter and not the dishwasher. That's because in my house growing up, there was kind of a rule and it was basically one of those rules you'd never violated. If you take dishes into the kitchen, don't leave them for somebody else. Put them in the dishwasher. So when my wife says, you don't have to do that. I have to resist all this upbringing, all of my history to be able to say, I'm going to leave this on the on the counter. And now, what I want you to see in this, in part, is, is that for me, I have to learn that other people do it different than I did growing up. And that's okay. And I need my little conscience informed that there's other ways to do it and it's just as good. Because I still feel a little guilty setting the cereal bowl on the counter and leaving it for somebody else. Mama, you know... Now here's the thing, if I don't ever get informed that other people do it differently and that's okay, let's suppose I see other people and they're bringing their dishes and setting them on the counter. What goes through my mind is you don't love your family very much. What I really need to learn is you know, this is one of the ways that my wife says here's a token of my love for you. I'll do that for you. And other people might have the same expression in their house. And so here's a person enjoying the love of of their spouse or their children who say I'll do it, and I don't see that, and so I become judgmental. I, I become looking at them. I say, "See, you should you should put that in the dishwasher. You don't love your family very much." And you hear how haughty I become. Now, this is meant to be a small and fairly easy example to digest, uh, because the matters about which Paul's speaking tend to get a little closer to home. We look at people and we say, you know. You don't dress well enough for church. You must not love people. You must not love God well enough. You don't vote the right way in politics. You must not really love God well enough. You don't raise your children the way you're supposed to. You you must not love God really enough. And we have this sense of judgment on these matters about which God gives us more freedom than we like to give each other. So, how do we do it? How do we live in these places where there's more freedom that God's given us than we feel? And I've got to work out. I've got to do something. I can't just not use dishes. I got to do something with them. I can leave them on the table if that's what my family wants to do. And I could leave, take them to the sink, or put them on the counter, or put them in the dishwasher. But we use dishes and we have to work out how to do it. And we live in the Christian faith and we have really practical matters about how to work it out. And in Rome, it came down to, well, let's talk about how you eat and drink. In this church, there were a lot of folks who said, you know, God made the animals and God gave us the animals. Enjoy the animals. You know, for supper. Eat meat if you want to. Others said, yeah, but, but some of those animals have been unclean. You really got to stay away from bacon. Pork is out. God made that unclean. I've been raised all my life to say I'm not eating that. Do you remember Peter was on the roof of the tanner's house and he had a dream? And God said, Peter, take up and eat from one of these unclean animals. And Peter said to God, not on my life. To God. His conscience couldn't let him eat, even though God said it's okay to eat. And you understand there were people in the church who'd heard from Paul, and they're kind of saying, I don't know, are you sure about that? Are we really allowed to eat pork now? I don't know if I could do it. They look at it on the, on the, on the plate and say, I just don't think God would be pleased with me eating this. Or, perhaps there are others in the church who about the same meat said, hey, all this meat was offered to an idol before it was brought to market. That's the way the Greeks do it. And, and, and this food that's being uh, sold to us was first offered to these false gods. And if I take part of that meat, what kind of witness do I have with the world? How could God be happy with me? How could He be pleased with me eating this meat that's what's been offered to other gods? Well, Paul says, and many in the church said, hey, that that idol that it was offered to isn't anything. It's a piece of stone. They set some meat in front of a stone, said some words that were meaningless. You you weren't participating in that. When you eat this meat, it's not really you worshiping that idol. It's you enjoying what God made. Be free, man. But they said, I just can't do it. I don't think it gives a good witness to the world and I don't think God is pleased with me when I eat. I don't think it means you're not a Christian. I just don't think I could do it knowing that it pleases God. When we have things like that in the church, places where we're wrestling and working it out and trying to figure out how to please God in every area, whether it's as significant as the practices that make our marriages work, or whether it's as small as are you going to eat that? whether it's something we eat or drink, whether it's something that we wear or put on, whether it's something that we do with our entertainment or recreation, whether it's something that we do with our children. God has given us some freedom. We've got to work that out in the church. And what happens when we disagree? Paul tells us first, do no harm. Verse 13, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Let's never make a brother fall. Let's never get in his way. He says, here's the deal. Some of your brothers think there's no way God could be pleased with them if they were to eat the meat that was in the market. You may know it's okay and God's fine with you eating the meat. So here's what you do. You have a big party at your house and you invite that brother and you set at his place some of that prepared meat. Because you know it's okay, and you're like, I know it's okay, and I know that if you just took one bite, he'd think it's okay. It's so good. And so you put that meat right in front of him, and here he comes to the party, and all around him are people who are eating this meat, and he's looking at you, his brother in Christ, and you're eating, and he's looking at the meat, and he's saying, God won't be happy with me if I eat, but my host won't be happy with me if I don't. What am I going to do? I must choose between the opinion of men and what God thinks. Now, you may say, but but God doesn't really mind if He eats the meat. But in His mind, He's saying, I have to decide whether I care more about what God thinks or what you think. And God is concerned with not just whether He eats the meat, but the whole process. Is He willing to do that which He thinks God does not want Him to do in order to gain your approval? Do you understand that that is idolatry? When he says, I'm more concerned about what my friend thinks, what what people around me are looking at and thinking and saying about me, than what God thinks, it's idolatry. And you have put him in a place where he has to choose between idolatry and service and offending you. So Paul says, don't put your brother in that spot. Don't put them in the place where They might be tempted to follow along with you against their conscience, believing the whole time, this grieves God, but it makes me fellowship with my friend. Here's what he says to do you offer the fellowship by giving up your freedom. When you have that brother over, have vegetables, have smaller portions. Go hungry, but love your brother. Do no harm. Don't make them choose between their fellowship with God and their fellowship with you. You say, we're bonded together. And if I have to choose between my freedom and you, I choose you. That's what he says to do. Do no harm. But then he says, do build up. Look at verse 18, or sorry, verse 19. So then let us pursue what makes peace, and for mutual upbuilding, let's look for ways to make each other grow up and be nourished. I want you to encourage your brother in his faith. I want you to encourage him to obey his conscience. I want you to encourage him to read his Bible and be informed. I want you to have discussions about whether or not meat's okay. Whether or not clothes are okay, whether or not this style of parenting is a good one. I want you to have discussions and think through what the scriptures say about all these topics, but but I want you to love one another enough that you're willing to lay down your freedom and encourage your brother so that if you say, Listen, man, I, I think I'm persuaded that it's okay to eat meat, but man, you aren't. So you keep the faith, you obey the Lord and I'll do it with you. We'll eat vegetables together. Because together, we're going to walk with Jesus. We're going to encourage one another. And so he gives us these two commands. One is, do no harm. Don't become a stumbling block. Two, look for ways to encourage your brother. Encourage him to strengthen his conscience. Encourage him to obey his conscience. And do so, not just with your words, but with your friendship and with walking with them. I tried to think about where a couple of areas I could do this. I could, I could say, here's how this looks in a real practical manner in front of you. And I'm really, uh, I really don't want to. I'm going to tell you why. In the church in Rome, whether you ate meat or not was controversy. It was a little bit controversial, and Paul's telling them how to deal with it. But the controversy was already there. Now, I could give you something that would be controversial perhaps something you're not already talking about, but then I've created a controversy. <laughs> I've given you reason to start arguing over something. And I'll just be honest, as a as a pastor, I'm not really uh, I'm uh interested in that. I, I figure these topics will come up eventually because we're different and because we're trying to engage each other in our lives, we're going to come across some things where we go, you do that? We're going to have to have that conversation. We're going to have to practice this. So uh, perhaps this isn't, applicable to the next minute of your life. Uh, Perhaps it is. But I want you to have this in your pocket. I want you to have these ideas. Do no harm. I'm not going to create a stumbling block for someone. I'm not going to try to drag them along against their conscience. But I'm also going to try to encourage and build them up and help them walk with Jesus in their tender conscience wherever it is. Now I want to tell you why. Why do you do this? Well, the first thing, verse 20, do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it's wrong for anyone who makes another to stumble by what he eats. Or verse 17, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Here's what he's saying here. You have a right because Jesus died and your righteousness doesn't come from what you eat or drink. You can eat and drink what you want. God hasn't said anything about those things. You're free. But that's not what the kingdom of God is about, you being able to eat and drink what you want. The kingdom of God is about a gift of righteousness that makes you right with God and you get fellowship with Him. And because you can fellowship with God, you can have peace with God and with each other. You can have something much bigger than the right to eat meat or to drink what you want. You can have something bigger than that. You can have joy in the Holy Spirit. You can have the Holy Spirit putting in your heart this settled hope and promise that you have eternal life, that you have God's favor, that you have a treasure in heaven, that nothing no thief can steal, no rust can get to, that no damage can be done, that it's guarded and kept for you. You have this joy that the Spirit brings you of walking with Jesus and knowing His favor. that He loves you. And here's what happens. When we start focusing on what we can eat or drink or how we're going to vote or what kind of clothes we're going to wear or how we're going to parent children or how we're going to spend our recreation time and money. And we look at each other and we start thinking about those things. We get ourselves bogged down in some of these smaller things, things that are much less essential than the good stuff. And we lose eye of the joy that that bonds us together. We start focusing on these little small things that may be different instead of the thing we share, which is fellowship with the Holy Spirit and with God the Son and with God the Father. And here's an interesting thought. If you cannot give up your freedom for your brother, if you say it's my right, I'm going to do what I want, no matter what, because it's mine, do you realize that you've become, well, enslaved to your freedom? You've become just a slave of something new. And it's not the kingdom of God anymore. It's of being able to eat meat. It's of, of of being able to have, you know, the kind of circumstances around you the way you want them. See, what happens is is we exchange one slavery, our slavery to to sin, for another slavery, our slavery to being able to do what we want. So the kingdom of God is something bigger than that. And, and and Paul says, I want you to see the bigness of the kingdom of God so you didn't get lost on the small stuff. Uh, Kent Hughes said it pretty witty. He said, let's not focus on externals, but eternals. That's pretty good. The second thing, and then by far the most significant. Verse 15. If your brother is grieved, and grieved here means is is brought to that point where he's having to grieve his conscience. He's having to violate his own conscience in order to have fellowship with you. If your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. You see, if you want to look around for a second, I want you to see the people for whom Christ died. You know, we can look at other people and we think uh, they're good on this committee. Or they're pretty witty and intelligent. I like having conversation with them. Or, you know, that person's a little bit hard to get to know and, you know, it's just a, a problem. But I want you to look around and see something completely different. The people around you are the people for whom Christ died. And that changes everything. That person next to you, God says, is mine. And you don't have a right to mess with them. You don't have a right to trip them up. You don't have a right to get in their way. You don't have a right to hinder them. You don't have a right to hurt their conscience. That's mine. I died for them. And and, and remember this. Earlier in this book, chapter 5, it said this. God demonstrates His love for us in that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. Christ didn't say, I'll die for you if you start getting your act together, if you get a little stronger, get a little better, you know, figure some things out, and then I'll die for you. He says, while you were weak, while you were sinners, when no one else would care, Christ died for you. And so you want to look around and say, these are people for whom Christ gave His life, how can I treat them as insignificant? These are people for whom Christ died so He made them righteous. How can I judge them and condemn them? I want you to have that thought every time you shake hands this afternoon. I'm shaking hands with someone for whom Christ died. Every time you speak of one another or speak to one another, I'm speaking to or of someone for whom Christ died. Let us value each other the way Christ did. There's an old syrupy uh, song, syrupy sweet, and um, sometimes pastors are prone to these sappy songs and stuff like that, so, you know, bear with it. The song is called Touch of the Master's Hand, if you've heard it. It tells this story, sort of country music style, of uh, an auction. At the auction, this old, dusty and battered, The violin is picked up and they start to auction it off. And the auctioneer calls out a dollar or two and there are no bids. And He asks and asks and it it looks like no one's going to bid on it until an older man comes up and he picks up the violin and he runs the bow across the strings and fiddles with the knobs just for a second. And then he begins to play music that is so glorious it hypnotizes the crowd. As he plays, they're sitting on the edge of their seats. And they're almost floating. It is so magnificent. And when he puts it down, everyone in there is longing for more. It's like you've just had the first taste of the meal. that was, you know, but you didn't get enough. They were like, "Give me more." And the auctioneer comes up and he says, "Who will bid for the violin now?" And hands begin to shoot up, and it rises into the thousands of dollars. And an observer says, "Wait, what's the difference?" It's the same violin. He says, yes, but this one was touched by the Master. The touch of the Master's hand. And I want you to see that, that the people in here for whom Christ died were touched by Him. And He said, I will show you what I think my son and my daughter is worth. I will give my life. How can we value anybody anyway? Let's pray together. Father in Heaven, we thank You that Jesus gave His life for us, that we might know Your love and Your favor and Your kindness, and now the sensible, logical thing is that we could extend that same kind of kindness to each other, that we would value each other the way You valued us, that we could lay down our lives and most certainly our freedoms in love for one another. And I want to be more clear and explicit about applications. I pray that You would give us Your Spirit, that we could figure out how to do this, that we could learn where these freedoms lie, that we could lay down, and that we would find a joy in doing so for the sake of Your Son, who loved us and gave Himself for us. We pray in His name and to His glory and honor. Amen.